Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and we want to consider this morning the life of faith a little differently than sometimes it's considered. I don't want this morning to make the emphasis trusting in God when times are hard. I want to make the emphasis believing His promises and keeping His commandments, all of which is faith. You've turned to Romans chapter 4, but let me remind you of a couple of other passages before we read it. After having described Enoch, our great brother, in Hebrews chapter 11, who pleased God with a wonderful life. Pleased God so well that the Lord took him and he was not. The next verse starts out this way, but without faith. It is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Hebrews 11.6 follows after Hebrews 11.5. In order to be like Enoch, you have to go through Hebrews 11.6 to get there. And so this morning we're going to look at faith. Something that is absolutely essential for us to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And we want that faith. The Bible tells us, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Our lives are to be built upon what we believe by faith, not upon what we see or hear with our senses. Our life is one built upon what we believe and know by faith rather than what we can see or hear. We walk by faith, not by sight. That was the Apostle Paul, and that's what gave him such a successful life. Because he lived by faith. Not by sight. Whenever you get discouraged, it's because you're looking around. Peter began to slip into the waters and drown himself because he wanted to look around at the wind and the waves. But the Lord Jesus Christ was standing there and could have kept him on top of that water. As He'll keep you on top of your water if you'll put your trust in Him. God hasn't changed. You've changed. We ought to remember that. Let's come to Romans chapter 4. I love this passage. I, meant, I mentioned this passage to you last Sunday, but you're going to get more of it. Amen. This is my favorite passage about faith. This is my favorite example of how we need to approach life. This is my favorite defense in answering anyone who asks me a question that I cannot answer. It's Romans 4, 17 through 21. Amen. Now the apostle leaves his subject at hand. His subject at hand is that God has saved Jews and Gentiles. All those that show the evidence of His salvation by their faith in Christ. Now he's he's following that course all the way down through verse 16. And the last words of verse 16 are, Who is the Father of us all? And with those words, Paul introduces the idea that Abraham is not only the father of Jews, but he's also the father of Gentiles. And then we have these next verses as Paul chases a rabbit to remind us of Abraham's great faith. Let's read them. Romans 4, 17. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, 
according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Amen Amen and amen. What a passage. What a description of faith. And I want you to learn it so well that you will lay hold of it whenever you need it, and that you will choose to be like Abraham when you face a hopeless, impossible situation like Abraham did. There is no one in here with a situation even close to Abraham's. That man followed the Lord so many times in so many ways. From the very beginning of his life, when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, he left his family, his home, his business, everything, to go to a place he didn't even know where he was going. The Lord just told him what direction to move. And he came into the land of Canaan. When he was there, his nephew was taken captive by four kings. Four kings with their armies came all the way from Mesopotamia to mess with his family and took them captive. Do you think that deterred Abraham? He got his 318 trained servants, gave them pitchforks, and took off. Or whatever weapons they had. And he defeated those kings. Then Abraham is told that he's going to have a seed by his wife Sarah, who was long past childbearing. And he believed it. And on and on we can go in the life of Abraham. But we want this example right here in Romans 4, 17 through 21. When the Holy Spirit chases a rabbit, it's a rabbit trail we want to go down. He has left the subject of justification for these five verses. He comes right back to it in verse 22, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. But for five verses, he describes the personal faith of Abraham. Let's look at verse 17. As it is written... I have made thee a father of many nations. I have made thee. That's an event that took place in the past. You're already a father of many nations. This is found in Genesis chapter 17. You could have read that last night. That was one of the possible chapters to read. This is where God told Abraham that he was going to, that he was the father of many nations and that he would be the father of many nations. If you read the chapter carefully, you'll see that it's in the future tense and in the past tense. That this is an event, it was as good as done in the opinion of God. This is when the Lord changed Abram's name to Abraham. He said, you've been known as Abraham, but Abram, but now you're going to be called Abraham because I have made thee a father of many nations. Ishmael was 13 years old. Abraham was 99. They were well past the age of childbearing. Don't believe anything about your ideas of patriarchal reproductive power. When the Bible says that Abraham was dead and Sarah was dead, do you know what it means? It means that Abraham was dead and Sarah was dead. They couldn't have any kids. Don't try to figure out, well, if Abraham lived to be 175... If I do some of my sophisticated extrapolation, then he was probably alive until 150. You're wrong. Quit doing your extrapolation and believe the Word of God. 
because it says in Romans chapter 4 that at 99 it was all over. The grasshopper wasn't just a burden, it had been buried. It was over. Trust the Word of God. And God said, I have made thee a father of many nations. And do you know what? Abraham believed him. Do you know why Abraham believed him? Because Abraham stood before God, and God said those words to him. And so it says, before him whom he believed, even God. If God says something, even if it's an impossibility, believe it. Believe it with all your heart. And that's what it tells us in verse 17, that God, and here's Paul adding a little bit for us, and we love to hear these things and read them, God's able to quicken the dead. When someone's dead, we don't know how to bring them back to life. We can't do it, but God can. To quicken someone is to make them alive. You know what the stuff under your fingernail is? You know, when you cut your fingernail, it doesn't hurt because it's dead. But if you cut your fingernail too short and get into that pink stuff that's under it, it hurts bad, doesn't it? If you don't believe me, take a pin and stick it straight up underneath your fingernail, the length of your finger. It'll hurt. It'll hurt a lot. Because it's quick under there, which means it's alive. I want all you children to know the word quick. Do you understand that, Keith? Underneath your fingernail is called the quick because it's alive. And when it says God quickeneth the dead, He makes the dead alive. Now, there's all kinds of dead. There's physically dead. Has God ever made the physically dead alive? Indeed. Has God ever made the spiritually dead alive? Indeed. And has God ever made the reproductively dead alive? Yes. Abraham and Sarah. Who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. When God makes a promise, it's as good as done to him. He can use the past tense and violate the verb tenses because he's the God of verb tenses. He's the God of time. He's able to promise something and bring it to pass so surely that he can say it's done. I have made thee a father of many nations because I have a covenant to do so. I have a promise to do so. That's verse 17. Do you trust in that God? The key in the verse is the being before whom Abraham stood. It was God. Before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Do you trust in that God this morning? This is why we're here. It's my job to build up your faith. Do you trust that God? That was impossible. Everything in your life is possible. This was impossible. And God had mercy. And kept His Word. That's verse 17. I love every one of these verses. I could take so much time on each one of these. I could preach a five-sermon series. This passage has saved my life so many times and kept my faith. I don't care what anyone says or everyone says. I believe Him before whom I stand. And that's the God of the Bible. That He's able to do the impossible and He will do the impossible for those that put their trust in Him. I don't have a doubt about it. Now, once in a while, there's a few. But not very often. Because of a passage like this. The Bible tells us, so faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So I give you the Word of God this morning to build your faith. Your faith, your trust in God. When the Bible says, the righteous have never been begging bread. Do you know what that says about your future? If you put your trust in Him, you'll never be begging bread. The rest of the world can beg bread, but you won't. 
You say, well, it just might be me that God makes the... God doesn't have exceptions to His promises. You're a doubtful, unbelieving skeptic. Be like Abraham this morning. Let's go to verse 18. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. According to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. So shall thy seed be is quoted from Genesis 15. That's where God said to Abraham one night, let's go for a walk. He brought Abraham out and he said, look up at the stars. Count them. Can you count the stars? How many are there, Caleb? Can you count the stars or are there too many to count? That's a great answer. There's too many to count. So God took Abraham outside and said, look at the sky. That is how much, how many your seed's going to be. And so that's what's being quoted here in this 18th verse. So shall thy seed be. Who against hope believed in hope. I love that little expression. You say, well, I want to know what it means. Who, it was an, it was a hopeless situation. That's what it means against hope. Who against hope? He really didn't have any hope that he could ever have a child by Sarah. She was dead, he was dead. So there wasn't any hope for that, so it was hopeless. Who against hope believed in hope. Because he really did want to be the father of many nations. He wanted that promise to be true. And so he did have hope in God's Word. And he believed against hope because it was hopeless from a natural standpoint. Who against hope? He had really no hope that it could ever happen naturally. He believed in hope. Life is never hopeless for a child of God that trusts in the living God. Never. Believe in hope. Even when it appears hopeless. Because this was hopeless. What a wonderful promise. Any doubts or issues that reduce hope in God's promises must be categorically rejected. You can't allow those kind of thoughts. You have to believe in hope. When God gives a promise and you want that promise true in your life, believe it. Claim it. Lay hold of it. Trust it. Do not allow any doubts. He'll take care of you. He will fulfill His Word. Verse 19, And being not weak in faith. We're about to get an explanation of what it means to be weak in faith. But Abraham wasn't. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. This is a description of weak faith. Abraham was not weak in faith, so he did not do what is here described. A man that is weak in faith does what it says in the second clause. He considers things. He wants to consider and think through things. There is no time, and it's a waste of time, and you can't accomplish anything by thinking through things when God has already spoken. When God's spoken, what are you going to add to it with your little mind? Why don't you go out and get a squirrel and ask its opinion? Why would you think? If God said it, that settles it. And that's what Abraham did. And that's being strong in faith. And these are the most important words in the whole passage. He considered not. He considered not. Three words are the most important words out of these five verses. He considered not. God says something, that settles it. When God says something, we believe it. We do not think about it. We do not try to explain it. We do not try to justify it. 
We do not try to look for precedence. We do not try to look for a natural or scientific explanation. We believe it. And we don't consider it. That is the danger. You will ruin yourself if you do a bunch of considering. And that's what textual critics have done. That's what seminary professors do. And that's what they do to every little boy that comes in there at the age of 18 who is still a little infant. 18-year-olds are infants. That's why they do the things they do. And that's why they will let men manipulate them. Because they're infants. And they'll come into a seminary class and they'll be called to question and they'll be taught to question and to consider the words of God when what they should be taught is, this is God's Word, brethren, and we have it. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. It's settled in heaven forever. Now get out there and preach it. These are the most important words. This is where I go into this passage. I dive right into the middle of it and get those three little words and I hold them and I see their light. I see their beautiful facets in the light of God's Word in the light of faith. And it comforts my soul. He considered not. Because I want to tell you something. On any subject, wicked men can raise questions. Wicked men can bring up their scientific studies that you will not be able to answer in your wisdom. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of real wisdom. And do you know what that says? If God said it, I believe it, and I don't even consider your ridiculous ideas. That is how important this is right here. This is real faith. Because if you, if you do not follow what I'm telling you, you've got weak faith, and your weak faith will be overthrown because God will send you some skeptic to give you naturalistic ideas that you cannot answer, and you'll give up on the Word of God. Creation. I don't need one bit of scientific evidence for creation. Any bit of scientific evidence you bring me, I'm going to laugh at it. It doesn't mean a thing to me. You weren't there, and neither was anyone that makes videos. We love looking at some of God's creatures, but no one can make a video about creation. Nobody was there. And the first rule of science is you've got to be able to observe what you're talking about. But no one's ever observed it. God said it. I believe it. I read Genesis 1.1. I believe it. I can't find a gap because gap is spelled G-A-P the last time I looked. And I can't find a gap there. I find six days of 24 hours because there's a day and a night involved. And God made everything in six days. And I believe it. And I understand it. And it's simple. And it's over. It's a settled fact. It's not up for debate. And if you don't believe in creation, then I don't have anything to talk to you about, and I won't. Because if you don't have faith, I can't convince you of creation. What am I going to do? Create something on my patio? Take you back with me in the time tunnel? Show you a video? If you don't have faith, I can't help you. Brethren, this is our religion. Our religion is in a book, and we believe it by faith. And the faith comes from God into our hearts. That's why hardly anyone else wants to go to church today. They don't have the faith. They don't believe they have a book. Everything's been stolen from them. We have the book. We have the words that we believe God gave. And we have the faith to believe them. That 19th verse is so important. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body. Now dead, when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He wouldn't think about either of them. And it's terrible what people do. Abraham wouldn't do it. No matter what you think, Abraham and Sarah were both dead. Abraham could have worried about all the details that were involved in them having a child. 
Such as, oh Lord, if you rejuvenate me so that I can be a man again, and I can be potent again, how, how, how in the world is Sarah's poor little womb going to bear that child? Because it's all dried up. It looks like a raisin, Lord. How in the world is that? And you start thinking about all the crazy details. And that's what people do. You know, when I talk to them about the King James Bible, all I need to hear is this question. Well, where was the Bible in 1610? Bye-bye. Have fun in Hades. I don't have anything to say to you. If you're going to worry about where the Bible was in 1610, you're retarded when it comes to faith. Because that is considering things that are outside of your sphere of knowledge and they cannot be proved. And if they could be proved, it shouldn't add one thing to your faith. None of that, none of that matters. They ask all these questions. Well, King James was a baby sprinkler. Or King James, he wasn't a baby sprinkler, he was a baby dipper. King James was a baby dipper. How can you hold the King James Bible? I don't care what King James was. I care about God's words. And God has put His divine stamp of approval on these words for 400 years. I don't care one thing about King James. You can go spend your whole life researching all the good things about King James. He was a sinner like you, a sinner like me, and it doesn't have a thing to do with the Word of God. Except God put him in a position called King, and the King said, I want a Bible. And the Bible says where the word of a king is, there is power. And we got a Bible. When a king says it, it happened. He considered not. He considered not. Remember those words. He considered not. Abraham could have read medical journals as to how the event could possibly take place, such as, were there any precedents for such a thing ever happening before that has a natural explanation? And that's what textual critics do. Can we provide a natural explanation as to how we got the Bible? They can't. Can they provide a natural explanation as to how we picked the 66 books? No, they can't. It's not done by nature. It's not done by science. It's not done by considering. It's done by believing. Is that a simple religion? And do you know what the Bible says? That he, that the, the apostle Paul feared lest Satan should deceive the Corinthians away from the simplicity of the gospel. God has hid these things from the wise and prudent. He's revealed them unto babes. We have wisdom. We have a good understanding of all that's going on in the universe because God's given it to us in His Word. This is wonderful truth. This is what makes us Christians. This is why we are here. The only way that there is a Jesus Christ of Nazareth is because the Bible says there is. You can't show me Jesus of Nazareth from the flowers. You can't show me Jesus of Nazareth from the stars. You can't show me Jesus of Nazareth from childbirth. You can't show me Jesus of Nazareth in the natural world. It's all by revelation. Do you know how hard men have searched for natural evidence of Jesus of Nazareth? They have gone into the works of Josephus and they've strained at every single word trying to find some natural man writing them some sentence about the existence of Jesus of Nazareth when we've got the Bible written by God that declares it as an absolutely certain and most important fact. And that's where we rest. Is Jesus Christ the Son of God? You bet He is. How do I know He is? The Bible tells me so. He considered not. He did none of those things. In every issue of faith, your flesh, the world, and the devil are going to say, well, you better be a little bit more sophisticated than that. You better be a little bit more intelligent than that. You're sounding like a simpleton that just believes anything the Bible says. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yes, that's exactly what I want to be. 
it is a lie that we need to go outside the Bible and find the evidence to prove the Bible. Don't do that. Once you start down that path, do you know what the verse says about you? You're weak in faith. If you're weak in faith, do you know what's about to happen to you? Your faith is about to be overthrown because somebody's going to bring something against you. As much as you believe in creation, an evolutionist can turn you on your head. A good evolutionist can turn you on your head if you want to engage him in debate. There's no one in here intelligent enough and there's no one in here knowledgeable enough to handle an evolutionist except with these words. Don't be offended. Genesis 1.1 reads, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That settles it. I believe it. You can go to hell. Because if someone doesn't believe that God created the heaven and earth, that's where they belong. You ask your father about, your grandfather about what I just said, Caleb. Those people you don't have any, don't waste your time with them. The Apostle Paul wouldn't. The Apostle Paul would not waste his time with people that did not believe there was a God and he was a creator and he had given his word. Wherever Paul went, he went and preached to people that believed there was a God and that believed he had given his word. Because if you don't have that, what do you have to start with? What are you going to start with? Let's watch a video about these three-horned frogs in Australia that can spit water and knock insects off the leaves of bushes hanging over the water? How is that going to build your faith? All they're going to say is, well, that evolved. They didn't learn how to get on land, so they stayed in water, and they learned how to spit so they could get those bugs down. And you can't answer them. But you can answer them with the Word of God. The Bible says it, and that settles it. I have children right now sitting in psychology at our local community college. They face this every day of their lives. You know, I have, a, I have a little daughter that on Tuesday has to go in and take a test on the fact that you should never touch a child in training your children. Now, I told her about all that as long as she's been alive. But we have the Bible. The Bible says, kids, you can't beat them. The Bible says you're better. Right. And that's what we believe. And it's settled. Would it matter to you if a hundred psychological psychology studies were done that told you that to beat your children is going to warp their personalities, is going to stunt their growth, and is going to turn them into violent people when they grow up? Are you going to listen to any of that? Is it going to alter your faith and confidence even one degree? If you do, you're so simple. I've got some, I've got some land in South Florida that's looking for a new owner. You're simple. You're weak in faith. Strong in faith. God said it. I believe it. And you know what? It's worked for 6,000 years. But you know what? I'm getting off the subject, ain't I? If I try to convince you that Proverbs is right about child training by the success it's had for 6,000 years, am I sinning against my own sermon? If I make that my emphasis at all. Yes, I am. If the Bible says it, that's enough. Because sometimes God will give results to sin in order to see what you will obey. Do we have that in the Bible? Does he say in Deuteronomy 13, once in a while I'm going to take a false prophet and I'm going to give him miracle-producing power so that you will not trust miracles, but you will trust my word? Does he say that? Does he say in Proverbs chapter 1 that sometimes fools are going to be very prosperous in order to deceive other fools into following them because they would not listen to my call? Does he say that? It's called the prosperity of fools shall deceive them and the turning away of the simple shall deceive them. Don't ever trust results. Trust the Word of God. Is this exciting? We have have something so precious. We have the answer to every dilemma. 
We have your future laid out. I know where every one of you are going. I'm going there too. And it's wonderful. We're going to inherit all things. It's going to take us all of eternity to talk about it all. It will never tire of it. And you know how we believe that? By faith in God's Word. Just like every other subject in this book. That's verse 19. Strong faith mocks anything contrary to God's promises and His power. There is no place for questions. There's no place for doubts. Why would you want to question the King James Bible? If you question this Bible, that means that there must be another one. Which one are you going to put up as the one that replaces this as God's words? This one has the divine stamp of approval for 400 years. What one are you going to put up? You're going to put up the message? Doesn't even have God's words in it. Some of the others do. Some of God's words. Message doesn't have any. All it's got are the words of Eugene Peterson. Why would you question it? You know, when someone comes along, well, don't you know that there have been changes from the first edition to this edition? Well, I'd say, yeah, maybe, maybe there were. There were some changes to uh, what Jehudai cut up in Jeremiah 36 as well. Right. Baruch went back to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah gave him those words and uh, a whole lot of other words too. Amen. You're not shaking me at all because I'd rather trust Jeremiah and Baruch than you any day. Amen. I've got the Bible. What do you have for your authority? Mother Goose? Or Benjamin Spock, Mother Goose being preferable, but who do you trust in? What, who do you have to trust in? We've got authority in our Bibles. And listen, brethren, our religion is based on a book. This book tells us about Jesus Christ. It tells us about God, the creation of the heavens and the earth, heaven, salvation, sin, and salvation. It tells it to us, and we believe it. And that's why we're assembled here this morning to remind ourselves of this and not to be moved away from the hope of the gospel, which is given to us in words put down on paper. Thank you, Lord. Verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. Are you able to take what I've said and just run through life? Run. Because if you stagger, I just don't know if I can do this. I just don't know if I can believe this. Why are you staggering? That's weak faith. Abraham didn't have it. He staggered not the promise of God. He got a gleam in his eye and he took Sarah to bed. You say you're being crude. No, I'm not. Just think about the Bible. Think about what the old man had to do. And the Lord gave them a son named Isaac, didn't He? At the appointed time that He told them that Sarah would have a son. Did Sarah nurse that child and laugh about it? God hath made me to laugh in my old age. Who in the world would have believed that I'd be nursing a baby at this age? But God did all that. Abraham did not stagger at the promise of God through unbelief. And if someone throws up something against you that you can't answer, don't stagger. Be like Abraham. Don't stagger. Just keep running. By my God have I leaped over a wall. I love those words of David in Psalm 18. How could David do that? Because he had faith in God. And God's words. God was going to take care of David. Do you know what looked impossible for David? To become king. Saul wouldn't let him become king. Saul was jealous. But by my God have I leaped over a wall. I'm not afraid of anything because God is with me. And David wasn't. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith. Strong men don't stagger. If you're staggering today on anything, get over it. Trust the God that is going to keep you. It's going to keep me. He's going to keep all of us. Don't stagger. Run. Don't run. Leap. 
by faith in God's words. It doesn't matter what anybody says to you. They're wrong on every subject. The Bible's right on every subject. We've got the Bible, so we don't need them. We need the truth of God's Word. They haven't made any advances. All you have to do is look around to fruits, and the Bible does tell us to look at fruits. But when you look around at fruits, you know they're wrong, and the Bible's right. He didn't stagger. He leaped. The men in Hebrews didn't stagger. But look what it says. He was strong in faith, giving glory to God. There's two, there's two ways I want you to see that. When we trust God in an impossible situation, we give glory to God because we're saying the impossible is possible with you, Lord. The second thing is God gets glory when we believe Him when it looks impossible to us. God gets glory from that. Do you want to give God the glory? Then believe the impossible. You might be thinking to yourself, well, creation is possible to me because I believe it's, so, it's really impossible. From all natural standpoints, creation is impossible. I mean, your faith might be so strong right now, you're not even getting the sermon. Oh, I would like to believe that. I would like to believe that. Creation, to create things out of nothing, is impossible. But we believe it because God said it. In verse 21, and we're fully persuaded of everything that I'm talking about. And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Fully persuaded. Not partially persuaded. Not tending in that direction. Not I think so. But fully persuaded. Wonderful. Are you fully persuaded on everything this morning? Let's find out. You know, we can talk about doctrine. We could talk about it for a long time. Are you fully persuaded about creation? I believe you are. Are you fully persuaded about the 66 books in your King James Bible? I believe you are. Are you fully persuaded about election? People, oh, I, don't, I just don't know if I can believe in election. Why not? They're staggering. They're considering. Well, now, if God were to make a choice and didn't give me my choice, that wouldn't be fair. Why would you even go through any reasoning like that? Where in the Bible does it tell you, prove all things by your thinking? The Bible says it. The Bible says God chose us in Christ before the world began. It says elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. It says who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect. The Bible says it. That's good enough. We believe it. It doesn't matter what anybody else believes. And we shouldn't even question it. Are you fully persuaded about election this morning? The Bible says it. So we believe it. Nobody else wants to be called a predestinarian Baptist, but we do because the Bible says we're predestinarian Baptists. We're fully persuaded of it. Predestination is taught in the Bible. If there weren't for predestination, we wouldn't even get to our destination. We're thankful for predestination. And we're fully persuaded of it. Are you fully persuaded of baptism by immersion? There's 2 billion Christians in the world, and 1,950,000,000 of them say you're wrong. Are you fully persuaded about baptism? Yes, we are. You're fully persuaded about the Lord's Supper? There's 2 billion Christians in the world. 1,900,000,000 of them say it's more than just a memorial feast of what Jesus Christ did for us 2,000 years ago. They say you're wrong. You fully persuaded that it's just a memorial? That it's not really His body and not really His blood? That it's just a figurative picture of His body and His blood? Are you fully persuaded? Nobody believes in hell anymore because no one's been there and come back. Billy Graham doesn't preach hell. Robert Shuler doesn't preach hell. Hardly anyone preaches hell anymore. 
Robert Schuller says, hell is living this life with low self-esteem. Billy Graham just says God wouldn't do such a thing. And anyway, it doesn't matter because everybody goes to heaven, and the first one in line getting into heaven is Pope John Paul II. There's far more evidence that he's going to be there than I'm going to be there. That's what Billy Graham said in a recent interview by, who's that Jew that's on the television at night? Larry King Live. Yeah, that's what he said. Larry, you know, good old Larry, he doesn't believe in anything. He asked Billy, he said, do you think, you think the Pope went to heaven? I'm more confident of him being there than I'll ever be. Oh, this is a man who used to preach against the Pope 50 years ago. Bad things happen when you have weak faith. And all you have to do is go look back and see who gave away all the living Bibles 30 years ago to know what happened to his faith. Who do you think popularized the living Bible in this country but the Billy Graham crusade? The living Bible that wasn't a Bible at all. It was Kenneth Taylor's novel about the Bible that he wrote in his work train going to work in Chicago. I told you about that last Sunday. They don't believe in hell anymore. The Bible tells me about hell being a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. You know what? I believe it. And if all the modern versions take out Mark 9.44 and 9.46, I still believe it. Amen. And I don't want to go there. And I'm thankful for Jesus Christ. He sent redemption for His people. Amen. He hath commanded His covenant forever. He will not let me go to hell. Do you believe that? Amen. That's why we're Christians in this assembly. Let me give you a few more. This is where it gets a little painful. Do you believe what I've said so far? I hope you do. Let's make the first one easy. Capital punishment. Is it a subject that's up for debate? When a person takes another person's life, is, is what should happen to them a matter that's up for debate? They have forfeited their life because the Bible says so. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. If you kill someone else and stop their life, what should happen to you? The government should put you to death and stop your life. That's what God said is fair. If you stop their life, your life should be stopped. Settled. Because the Bible settled it. But what about the studies that show that capital punishment is not a deterrent? Oh, what a joke. Get, give me pay-per-view television for one year and give me death row for that one year and I'll show you that it is quite a deterrent. You wouldn't be watching big-time wrestling. You'd be watching big-time capital punishment on TV and all the proceeds would go to the victims' families. Isn't that a wonderful setup? You know, in the Bible, it was done publicly like that. But what about all these studies that say it, it, it's not a deterrent against murder? Who cares what they say? God has already spoken. What if it's not a deterrent? Would we still believe God's Word? Yes, we would. So it doesn't really matter, does it? This is what faith does. It lays hold of the Bible and believes it no matter what. And it does not let anyone influence its decisions. What about the fact that one innocent man was executed in the last hundred years? So what? That's just a consequence of imperfect judgment. But imperfect judgment is better than no judgment. Imperfect authority is better than no authority. You know, if you keep yourself away from the appearance of evil and follow the whole Bible, you'd never be caught in a situation where you could be accused of murder. How can loving Christians use cruelty to supposedly end cruelty? Because God said so. That's why. Do you see how it works? Are you like Abraham? 
You don't make any consideration. God said it. I believe it. I'm not going to stagger at His commandment at all. I'm going to run straight through that door and I'm going to leap over a wall by my God. I know what is right in this matter. I know what is right. Because God said it. Do you trust God's Word that much? You have the answer to every question. I had, I had a great pleasure last night talking to my daughter. She probably doesn't know it from last night, but now I hope she knows it. Because she was talking about the fact, Dad, I've got the answers. I sit there in class and they're babbling up there things they don't even under, they don't even understand themselves. The teacher says, well, what do you think? And one student says, well, I think this. Another one says, well, I think that. And oh, I had this experience and none of that is worth anything. Right. Nothing. And she's just sitting there, well, my dad told me the Bible, and he showed me in the Bible that it says this. And you've got answers. Do you know how wonderful it is to have the Bible? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and a good understanding have all they that keep His commandments. His praise endureth forever. Praise the Lord. We have absolute final answers on all subjects. And if there's any subject we don't have the answer on yet, it's because we haven't studied the Bible enough. Because the Bible is able to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. There's an answer to every question. And if we don't have the answer, it's our fault, not His. Oh, that's a pleasant sound to me right now. I hope that it's not bothering anyone else. Let's go now to some practical subjects very, very quickly. Marriage. Marriage. What's the number one criterion by which you ought to pick a spouse for marriage? The The fear of the Lord. But what about temperament? Where's that in the Bible? What about compatibility? What about their family? What about what they like on their pizza? What about whether they like to bowl or not? What about whether they like to read or not? Do you know what you should look for in somebody that you're going to marry? One thing. Do they fear God? Do they fear God? Because if they fear God, it will take care of everything else. But even that is arguing outside of my point this morning. The Bible says it. Favor is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. You have got yourself a winner if you pick someone that fears the Lord. And if you try to pick based on anything else, you're damning yourself for a painful life in this world. But if I'm that strict, I'll never get married, someone says. Oh, you know what I say to that? Thank God for the safety of that rule then. Because if you'd never marry someone that didn't fear the Lord, you'd be saved from all the trouble of marrying someone that didn't fear the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for that rule of safety. Isaac and Jacob found someone, and there wasn't anyone in sight. No one in sight at all. They had to take a long, long trip to go find someone. And oh, did they find someone. Isaac found Rebekah. His, oh, let me tell you, just go read the story. I don't need to say any more. I, I probably will if I don't get off this subject. But, you know, when Isaac met Rebecca, what did he do? Did they sit down and talk about what they liked in their pizza? Or did Isaac take Rebecca into his mother's tent and get that marriage consummated right then and there? Is that what happened? When Isaac and Rebecca went for a walk, did they always just go for a walk holding hands? Or when they went for a walk in the field... Did Abimelech look out his window and find them sporting in the field? Go go look that up in a good dictionary. Don't take a current definition. They weren't playing croquet. I love the Word of God. It is so beautiful on every single subject and every single word. I love the word sporting as it's describing Isaac and Rebekah out in a field. You say, that'd be scratchy. Well, yeah. 
Marrying a God-fearing person is more than wise. It's, it's a commandment. Amen. And it's beautiful that God's given us these commands to save you in marriage. What about a wife in marriage? How should she behave? Should she read the newest good housekeeping or red book articles about marriage? Or should she look into the Bible and find out, how can I be a happy woman that I'm married? How can I be a happily married woman? What does the Bible say? And it says that she ought to submit to her husband in everything. It says that she ought to reverence her husband. And it says that. It says she ought to have a meek and quiet spirit toward her husband. It says from time to time she ought to call him Lord. Or she, and she ought to do it right in here. Right in her heart. See, the Bible says that. It's settled. Our whole point this morning, God said it, that settles it. And so when it comes to marriage, and a woman's hearing all this noise and clatter from the whole world, oh, that's, that's the old-fashioned days when men rode dinosaurs to work. We're not like that anymore. Men, husbands and wives are partners now in marriage. But God never saw it that way. God never created it that way. There's an answer for that issue, and it's in the Bible. The woman will say, but if I submit the way the Bible describes and you preach, I'll be a doormat. Not a chance. You submit the way God says and the way I preach and you'll have the happiest and most fulfilled life you're capable of and the only disappointments you will have is when you cheat on what the Bible says and what I preach. Child training. Why do we believe in corporal punishment in spite of what the world says? Because the Bible says. And the fruit is evidence. They, they wonder why Columbine high schools take place. Because children aren't required to do anything. There's no authority in their lives. I'm reasoning through fruits. What if PTA and PETA, that's people for the ethical treatment of animals, brought up a hundred scientific studies against corporal punishment of children? What would you do if there were a hundred produced? A hundred studies by PETA that says you shouldn't discipline your children or you shouldn't use a paddle. We would reject them as science falsely so-called and continue to obey God's plain rules and His promise. What if we see children turn out as great kids and their parents never disciplined them? So what? We'll keep right on disciplining them the way the Bible says. How do we know that's not fool's gold that the Lord brought into our neighborhood or our circle of friends to see if we're going to follow His Word and not results? Results don't prove anything. And God has ordained that so that you'll trust His Word and His Word only. What if, we have diffi- what if, my chil- what if I have difficult times with my children while they're growing up? I'm having a hard time right now with my children. Someone would say, Believe God. God said, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is a promise of the Word of God. But couldn't there be an exception in my case? No, the only exception is, you accepted yourself, accepted yourself out of God's commandment, and you haven't done the training. If they don't turn out right, you forfeited on your training responsibilities. There may be some rough times for a while. Trust God's promise. Do you see how this is so practical? You thought I was just going to talk about Abraham, but look at how we can be like Abraham. And I don't mean trusting God when times are hard so much as keeping His commandments. Keeping His commandments. What He teaches us about marriage, we ought to do. What He teaches us about child training, we ought to do. What about Bible economics and the use of your money? Are you paying God first? Or do you pay God last? If you pay God last, 
you are sinning financially and you're going to be judged. The Bible tells you what to do. It's to honor Him with all thy substance and with the first, first fruits of all thine increase. You pay God first and that is Bible. That's not Jonathan Crosby. And the only reason I'm saying it is for your welfare, not mine. If you doubt that, put it in the big box. I've always said that. I don't care one bit. I want your prosperity. And I want God's glory because we're all obeying Him. Pay God first because the Bible says to pay Him first. Is it possible for 4 minus 2 to equal 3? Is it possible for 4 minus 2 to equal 3? Impossible in natural considerations, but possible before God. If you have 4 and you give away 2, you'll have 3 left if you give it with a cheerful and generous heart. The Bible says that. Where where does it say that? Because I'd I'd like to get my hands on that. That's Proverbs 11 and verse 24. There is that scattereth, but it tendeth to increase. And there is that withholdeth more than his meat, but it tendeth to poverty. Choose. Choose what you want. It's your choice. But God's rules will not be overthrown. I can't afford to give right now. We know how to answer that one, don't we? You can't afford to not give right now. If you're in financial trouble right now, there's never been a time in your life that you need to give more than right now. I can't afford to save. So be it. Bye-bye. Going down? Savings isn't a good idea. Savings is a commandment. God's little creatures, as little as the ant, do it well. And God said, go to the ant, thou sluggard, and thou spendthrift. Honoring parents. Do you believe what it says in the Bible? That if you'll honor your parents, you can live a long and a good life? Is that the easiest way to add some years to your life? It beats exercise from a person that doesn't Get too excited about exercise, I just heard. But it's true. Amen. You say, well, there isn't any connection between honoring my parents and a long life. There isn't any connection between... Oh, yes, there is. Do you know what the connection is? It's Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 3. It's Exodus chapter 20, and it's Deuteronomy chapter 5. There's a big connection. Right. Let's keep that connection. Let's honor it. You make so much fun of the mega church philosophy of seeker-sensitive. Look at how big they are. Look at how fast they're growing. Look at how happy they all are when they go to church. They don't have to sit there and get pounded for an hour when they go to that church. They get to rock and shake with their rock band. They can rap if they want the rap venue. How can they possibly be wrong? Because the Bible says they're wrong. That a time would come when they would no longer endure sound doctrine and they're wrong. And evil seducers would wax worse and worse and Rick Warren is one of them. That's why, because the Bible tells me. But surely details don't matter. We've been over that one before, haven't we? Details do matter. Ask David about the Ark of the Covenant. Ask Moses about a rock. Details matter. Mark chapter 10, I'm going to read to you. Listen to these words. The The rich young ruler went away from Jesus because he was unwilling to give up his money. Peter, Peter saw this, and here's what Peter said. Lo, we've left all and have followed Thee, Lord. Lord, we've left all we've got to follow Thee. Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, 
or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands. This is God's list. For my sake and the Gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. What a promise. Do you believe that promise? That is a promise of God's Word that you can absolutely count on. That whatever you give up for the sake of Jesus Christ, He'll give you a hundredfold more. And I commend you, brother, for coming here for that reason. Amen. Now, you, you hold me faithful to that, and I'm going to try to hold you faithful to that. And I promise you, if you've done it for the gospel's sake, and I know you have, God's going to give you a hundredfold. You left your house. You left your job. You left your family. You left your friends. You left your area. I commend you for it. Amen. It's the life of faith. Abraham went to Canaan where he didn't know where he was going. At least you knew where you were going. You just don't really know what we're like. May the Lord help him. I've warned him. You want to see the paragraph? What do you think I write him and tell him about us? I tell him the truth. And I'm so glad to have him here. I'm talking about your father, Keith. You left your house, didn't you? You left some of your friends, didn't you? You left your street, didn't you? Your dad left his job, didn't he? He came here by faith. And I give you a promise right there. One hundredfold in this time and in the world to come, everlasting life. Do you know what? Everything we do by faith is win-win. We never lose. It's win-win. May God help us. The last thing I want to say is, there's one thing I want you to believe by faith. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Amen. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You haven't seen Him. You haven't heard about Him from any other source. But He's right here in the Bible. And this is the faith that overcomes the world. The faith that believes Jesus Christ is the Son of God. If, you're going, if you want to lay hold of all that God has said and believe it, start this morning with believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Every one of you that have been baptized, I've stressed that one point. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We believe it by faith. Let's live by faith and keep all of His commandments because there's not only reward in doing them all, they are the true religion of the Lord Jesus Christ, keeping God's commandments. And you have a good understanding if you do that. And may the Lord bless us and may His praise endure forever by a group that does it. Amen.